Anakin Skywalker was the only one worthy to bring balance to the Force. Frodo Baggins was the only one worthy to carry the ring of power to the fires of Mordor. The only worthy coach that you're looking for for your favorite football team can save your season. The only worthy descendant of King Arthur could pull the sword from the stone and deliver their people from tyranny. The only the, the worthy candidate can deliver a political victory for your party. Only the, the worthy Katniss Everdeen could dethrone President Snow. Only the, the worthy boy with the lightning scar could defeat the one who must not be named. Our world loves worthy heroes that could bring deliverance in situations of hopelessness. Why? Is it just because we love a good story? Or is it something more? There are certain themes that we see retold time after time, generation after generation, because they reflect something that is woven into the very fabric of our universe. The worthy one who brings hope from hopelessness is at the core of our world. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, I want to introduce you to the story that is above all stories. The stories of redemption you see in our culture only dimly reflect the true story of the gospel. I want you to consider the one who is truly worthy of our praise and adoration. And beloved, I pray as we approach this glorious text that we would have our hearts turn again to God's glorious story of redemption. That we may give glory, honor, and praise to the only one who is worthy. I was talking to a brother this week and he said, Pastor... I can't wait till you preach Revelation 5 this Sunday. And I was, at the same time, excited and scared. <laughs> Anytime a pastor approaches a text that is so beautiful as Revelation 5, you just want to do it justice. I pray I will this morning. Uh, we continue with John's vision of the throne room in heaven. Chapters 4 and 5, as I said two weeks ago, are one scene. Revelation 4 has this glorious picture of God seated on His throne in all His glorious splendor, surrounded by the glorious heavenly beings who worship Him day and night, casting down their crowns, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4.11 As the scene continues, John moves us through this vision, kind of giving us clues on what he wants us to see. So four times in this passage he says, and I saw, and I saw, and I looked, I looked. So those are kind of clues for you in your own reading of what the author wants us to see, that repetition is, is an outline for us. So what do we want to see here in this this morning? The first point, number one, no one worthy. No one worthy. John begins by introducing a scroll that is held in God's right hand. Look at 5.1 again. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Notice that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, the number seven throughout the book of Revelation is a picture of, of completeness or wholeness. The scroll being sealed seven times indicates that this scroll is totally and completely secure. For all who want to desire to read its context, they can't unless they are 
worthy. Second, we want to notice this scroll was in the right hand of God. It was secure with its seals, but it was also secure because it was in the right hand of God himself. Lastly, we must consider first, what is this scroll? There have been many ideas kind of put forward what the scroll, what are the contents of the scroll? Some would say it's the, it's the book of life. Some would say it's the last will and testament of the saints. Some would say it's a contract or a book containing God's redemptive plan. Based on the context of Revelation and just kind of the background story that we don't have time to really get into in Isaiah chapter 29, Daniel 8, and Ezekiel 2, uh, it's most logical this is a divine contract that God has given the world about how he's going to unfold history, how he's going to bring about his eternal redemption. So remember, beginning in chapter 4, when, when the vision was given, John was told that he was going to be shown all the things that were going to soon take place, or take place after these things. So the sealed scroll holds the details of all history. It's a, a key theme in the, in the prophetic books, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. So this audience would have understood that significance. One of the challenges when we approach the text of God's Word is that we approach the text with a 21st century American mind. And we have to kind of put ourselves into the, the, the religious world of when this text was first delivered. This, this audience would have known the background of the prophecies. It says this text is written on the front and the back, again, to show the comprehensive and extensive nature of the decrees of the Lord. All that to say, this is an extremely important scroll. And after introducing the scroll, there is movement in the vision. Remember what I said, look at that, that vision that God, that God gives us, who I saw. In verse 2 it says, and I saw, Hugh, another thing we want you to see. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, you picture John watching this vision and seeing that loud proclamation, Who is worthy? You would just imagine people looking around. And it says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one who was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So if you read Revelation 4 and 5 together, the key word is worthy. That's kind of a, rep a repetitive word there. Uh, only one word, only one who is worthy can open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth is worthy. It's this trifold description that covers everywhere in all existence. There is no one worthy in all creation. See, God himself does not open the scroll. He needs a mediator. Who is this worthy mediator? Now, we all know where this is going. We've read the text. I read it a few weeks ago. But I want us to camp right here on the feeling of the Apostle Paul, Apostle John when he says, I began to weep loudly because there is no one who was found worthy. The unfolding of history and the God-ordained future was shut up, and no one will know. There's a hopelessness here. Now imagine you have a little boy. 
You love this little boy with all your heart. You've, you've seen him uh, take his first bike ride. You, know, you love getting down on your knees at night and, and praying with him. His smile just lights up your, your world. Now imagine that little boy was diagnosed with leukemia. And after they search everyone in the family, all the extended relatives, there was no bone marrow match. No worthy match. And just think of the pain of a mother and a father in the moment they realize no one is worthy. They would weep loudly because no one is worthy to save their little boy. Hopeless, desperate, helpless. See, John weeps here, but not for himself, but for the future events that, that God um, will, that will go unrealized, namely the coming of the final kingdom of God. I mean, have you ever been hopeless or desperate, helpless? Have you ever experienced the tears and agony of hope unrealized? The good news of the gospel of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ is only can be truly good news if we first understand the hopelessness of our own sin. The lie of too many churches is that people can be worthy of salvation by their works. If they serve the poor, they feed the hungry, care for the least of these, or just good people, then they are worthy for God's salvation. Friend, no one is worthy. In heaven, on earth, or under the earth. We are sinners. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. John weeps because he realizes without someone worthy to open the scroll, all is hopeless. God's redemptive plan is left unrealized. He knows, like we all know, that we need a Savior. And those tears symbolize a hopeless life without a Redeemer. Friends, true joy can only come after you realize that you are hopeless in yourself. We are sinners to our very core. Now, many churches do not preach about sin because it's uncomfortable. But, friend, without hearing of our sin, our hopelessness, how can we truly appreciate salvation? I mean, take, your, take yourself back to that hospital waiting room, to that mother and father. And the little boy is sitting in the hospital bed. And there's no worthy match. They fall on their knees, weeping loudly because they're done. And all of a sudden, they hear footsteps coming their way. And a doctor pulls out a piece of paper. We have a worthy match. That hopelessness turns to joy. That's exactly what we see here in the text. Second point, no one weeping. No one weeping. It's hard to capture, right, the magnitude of this reversal between four verses 4 and 5. It's a glorious declaration that there is salvation, there is hope, there is hope on the way. And the elder said to me, the verse says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Friend, <laughs> weep no more. 
Your, your mourning can turn to, to laughter. But your weeping turns to shouts of praise. This is a glorious sentence. The Redeemer has conquered. Past tense. The, 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 the greatest thing that's happened in all of history is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for all. That, remember as we were going through those seven churches? At the end of every letter, what did it say? To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. Jesus has conquered for you to eat of the tree of life. To not be hurt by the second death. To receive a new name on a white stone. To give you authority over all nations. To clothe you in white garments. To make you a pillar in the temple of God. To grant you to sit on the throne with Him. Jesus has conquered the grave for all who believe. It is glorious. And here it says that he's identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Both of these are messianic terms. Uh, the first, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is taken from Genesis 49, 8 and 10, 8 through 10, which reads this way. It's the description of the 12 tribes. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, meaning rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Jewish people were expecting a messianic warrior king to come through the tribe of Judah. When you read that in its context, it is a war imagery. A, a warring Messiah will come. Even the lion itself is a picture of power and ferocity in battle. It's a good picture of how, how Judah will have its hand on the, on the neck of his enemies. And here it says the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Just not in the way the Jewish people were thinking. We'll get there in a second. But the second term, the root of David, is taken from Isaiah chapter 11. Here again we see how the Messiah will reign in power. So Isaiah chapter 11 reads this way. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. As his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So if you were a Jew in the first century, you heard Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, what it's in your mind is a warrior messianic king. It's not a passive, humble king, but it's a warrior king. So they were longing and waiting for a vindication of their messianic warrior king. However, this king, they were expecting, did not come in power, but he came as a lamb who was led to the slaughter. Last point. Only one worthy. Only one worthy. Christianity is a paradox. We conquer, not by sword, but by sacrifice. We win through defeat. We have peace only through the blood of the lamb who was slain. Revelation 5, 6-8. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw. 
Now, you would, you, would, you would think, if you were following this text, that you would say, I saw a lion. But no, what does it say? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the throne, each holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice it wasn't the fact that he was there that worship happened. It was the fact that he actually reached out and took the scroll. But he had the power to take that scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb that was slain. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Again, this number seven is symbolic, meaning completeness. A horn was a symbol of power. So this lamb had complete and total power. That's why he had seven horns. And remember, this is not a literal picture. It's trying to communicate who the Lord Christ was. But he also had seven eyes. That was to symbolize his omniscience, his complete knowledge of all things throughout the earth. These, these eyes were further identified as the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth, referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent out by God the Father and God the Son, first happening at Pentecost. It was sent out to bring salvation through all the earth. To bring salvation from every tribe, language, and nation. So here the Lamb is worshipped. Why? He is worthy. And He's not worthy merely because of virtue, which often we think. He is worthy because of authority. Only God is worthy. Only Jesus Christ, the Lamb, has authority. He's one with the Father. We'll see this as he's praised towards the end of this passage as being worthy with the Father. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down before the Lamb and they declare in song the worthiness of the Lamb. Do you, do you want to know why we sing so many songs? It's because we want to be like heaven. We want to sing of the worthiness of the Lamb. This is what it says right here, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Four reasons why I think the Lord is worthy from these two verses. Uh, number one, he's worthy to reward. The Lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. So chapter 6, 7, and 8 is, is God opening those seals and bringing judgment down upon the earth. It's important for us to know that the Lamb will reward people for their works. We know that throughout Scripture that God will reward every man for how he lives in this life. He will reward humanity for their labors. Romans 2, 6-11, Paul specifically says this, that God will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, shall be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Friends, we will be rewarded how we live. We won't save ourselves by how we live. We are only saved by, by believing and trusting in, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if we say that we profess Christ, God wants us to live unto his glory. Let us do so. We also see that he's worthy to redeem. The lamb is worthy to redeem. 
He's worthy because he was slain, and by his blood he ransomed people for God. Hebrews 9, 2 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, we all know we're sinners. We've all wronged God, rebelled against his good word. So in the garden, right after sin entered this world, God clothed Adam and Eve by shedding the blood of an animal. So God shed the blood of his own son to clothe to clothe us in the righteous robes of Christ. Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. The word ransom there is a term used for in, in the slave market. To, when someone bought back someone's freedom, they, they ransomed that person. Jesus bought our freedom from sin by bleeding for us. His blood has brought us peace. Colossians 1.20 says the same thing. same thing we read the Simeon read for us in Isaiah 53. There is only redemption in the blood of Christ. If you are here today and you have not yet trusted in Christ, there is hope for you today. Today you can say, I will weep no more because God has paid for my sins with His blood. He died for you. We know that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted because of the resurrection of the dead. The fact that God, the Lamb, is in the throne room. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was innocent. And paid the penalty for all who would trust in Him. For our sake, He became sin who knew no sin. So that, so that, we might become the righteousness of God. God does not merely want to save you from hell. But He wants to save you into, unto eternal life. He wants you to live a life by the Spirit of Christ. It's what we've been a chance to picture here in a moment in, in baptism. Someone's going to walk in one way. They're going to be... Buried with Christ, they're going to be raised to, to walk a new life, walking in the opposite direction. Repent and believe. T and T. Turn and trust. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. He has made a way. Will you walk? Will you walk in it? He's also worthy to reconcile. Worthy to reconcile. The beauty of God's salvation is that it's never merely individual. God saves us individually to be part of His ransomed people. The Bible is God's plan to make a people for himself who are zealous for good works. The reconciliation that God brings forth is far more than just a personal reconciliation. We are reconciled to God, yes, but we are also reconciled to brothers and sisters from every tribe, every language, every people, and every language, every nation. We are a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family. And the Bible says that he will save people from every tribe, every nation, and every language. For his namesake, God is on a worldwide mission of redemption, and he invites his church to join in. We are called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that the Lord has commanded us. Every year, we talk of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, because there are people in this world who have never heard the name Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that he, he made it his mission to go where the gospel has yet been preached. In giving to this offering, what we're saying, we can participate in a small way of, of sending the gospel to the most unreached places in the world through thousands of missionaries. But beloved, our mission's giving does not end with mighty moon. But we give to those in our own congregation who are going to the ends of the earth, short term or long term. Maybe God is calling you here in this congregation to go to 
the nations. Maybe God wants you to relieve the, 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 the comfort of your family and the comfort of your own home to go to the, the remote mountains of Nepal or a small village in Africa. Maybe God wants you to stay here so you can hold the rope for others as they go, like Andrew Fuller did to William Carey. Maybe God wants you to engage with the people who don't look like you right here in Rock Hill for the sake of the glorious Lamb who was slain for you. And over this past year, I have been saddened in how the church in America has not led the way in reconciliation. The racial divide in our country has, has been pronounced over the last couple of years. I see a lot of anger and frustration from Christians. It's, it really sickens me how I see Christians handling themselves. During a recent Bible study, we um, were talking through Ephesians 2 about how God had a plan to take two people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and make them one people of, of God. And we asked the question, why don't our churches reflect this heavenly, heavenly throne room? That our churches are not people from every tribe and, and tongue and language gathered together to worship our God. And, and one of the brothers said, our Sundays don't reflect a multi-ethnic reality because our Monday through Saturday does not reflect a multi-ethnic reality. Beloved, the church is God's plan to reach the world. We are called to display the manifold wisdom of God to those in the heavenly places because God has sent forth his lamb to be slain to redeem from every people, every tribe, every language, and every nation. The more we reflect a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family, the greater that we reflect our citizenship in heaven. Jesus is worthy to redeem and to reconcile. Let our redemption be reflected in how we are reconciled to all people. Let us never look at people according to the flesh, but through the Lamb who was slain. Lastly, the worthy to reign. The Lord is worthy to reign. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, has made us, his people, a kingdom of priests and a kingdom and priests to his to God. We shall reign on the earth and rule as co heirs with Christ. The kingdom means that the church will reign. That's the reigning language. That when we are a kingdom, we will reign. But we are priests means the church will serve. We will serve God and reign with him for all eternity. Christians have been transformed. We are no longer in the old Adam, but we are in Christ. We belong to him. We were bought with a price. We have been made a kingdom. We have been made priest unto God. We are a holy priesthood who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.4 now remember, our victory is not by sword, but by sacrifice. Friends, we must lay down our lives for others. Jesus showed us the way of the kingdom by giving himself for us. We must give ourselves to each other and to a lost and hurting world. If we want to reign, we must follow the way of the Lamb and suffer for the sake of others. Now there's a spirit in the, ev in the evangelical church in America that troubles me. It's a spirit of triumphalism. That, that we have to take things by force. The way of the kingdom is the cross. The cross of Christ conquers. The lamb is worthy. And if the lamb is worthy, isn't the way of the lamb worthy as well? 
the Lamb who was slain for the sins of others. So maybe God has has saved us through the way of the Lamb so we could save others by the way of the Lamb. God is maybe asking us to bear with the sins of others, being willing to suffer so that others may know Christ. Romans chapter 8, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs with God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. When we say we are not willing to suffer, but that we have to triumph against the things in our, in our day, we are not walking in the way of the cross. The American church needs to be rebuked for our lack of willingness to suffer for Christ. These seven churches in Asia, they would have rejoiced that they were counted worthy to walk with the Lamb. This scene ends with a sevenfold doxological hymn to the Lamb, followed by a fourfold hymn connecting the Father and the, 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 who sits on the throne with the Lamb. The one who is on the throne and the Lamb are one. Look at verse 11 through 14. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Friends, there is something in our hearts, a deep desire to see one who is worthy. Let us train our hearts and our minds that every time we see our world showing someone who is worthy to, to bring hope in the midst of despair and hopelessness, turn our hearts to praise the only one who is worthy so that we can forever rejoice that we shall weep no more for the worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lamb who was slain. It's in the name of the Lamb that we pray, Jesus Christ.